Good evening. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1 is basically divided into two sections. First, Paul blesses God for the great spiritual blessings he gave us in Christ. You'll find that in verses 3 through 14. And secondly, which we will look at tonight, Paul prays to God that the eyes would be open and we would grasp the fullness of those blessings. And we'll look at verses 15 through 23. So let the words of this text tonight encourage each of you to pray unceasingly for greater illumination into God's powerful working and rich gifts that you possess in Christ. Let's read our text, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's a lamp to our feet, a light for our path. Illuminate our minds and hearts, God, as we read your word. Help us not only to know your word, but to understand it. Help us not to only understand it, but to live it in Christ's precious name. The Sun-Herald of Mississippi in 1989 wrote, One woman died leaving an estate of $350,000 to her relatives while she had been living in a run-down house, rummaging through trash bins and dressing in ragged clothes. She had grown up poor and worked 39 years at a low-paying job. However, during those years, she had amassed an estate of several hundred thousand dollars. Yet she died malnourished, refusing to spend money on food. And all too often, we hear stories of people who have died with substantial wealth. I think we all know people like that. But have lived the last years of their lives like paupers because they were afraid to tap into their resources. And Christians, all too often, are like this woman from Mississippi who has the greatest spiritual resources, but they never use them. Unlike this woman who knew she had this large sum of money and refused to use it because of fear... Many Christians don't use their resources, mainly due to ignorance. Well, Paul's prayer in our text tonight is to beseech God to enlighten the Ephesians and to us the deep insights of the spiritual realities we have in Christ and to eliminate ignorance. But not only to eliminate ignorance, but also to understand these realities and experience them. You need to continuously pray for others and yourselves 
that God would increasingly give you a deeper understanding of the spiritual realities you possess in Christ. And not only to understand it, but to experience it. That's the Christian life. Paul, who was in prison in Rome when he wrote this epistle, more than likely addressed the Ephesians. Not for any specific problem, but to encourage, unite, and inform all the believers in that area. Interesting, there are numerous similarities between the letter of Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians. Paul's co-worker, uh, Tychicus, delivered both letters, which suggests that they were written from the same place and to encourage and admonish believers in these areas and their immeasurable blessings they have in Jesus Christ. Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, he says, For this reason, this is where we'll start, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now this prayer that Paul the Apostle prayed is a response to the great proclamations of theology in verses 3 through 14. Paul just finished one long, long sentence in, in verses 3 to 14. And this one long, wonderful sentence declares to us what we possess in Christ, what God in Christ has given us. It gives us the idea of election, sonship, redemption, revelation, and an inheritance. And I would recommend that you read um, verses 3 through 14. It's what you as Christians possess in Christ. Now these truths that we that are in verses 3 to 14 are really beyond our ability to understand. 1 Corinthians 2 verses 9 through 10 says... But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, these truths cannot be known externally or even internally what God has prepared for those who love him. However, verse 10 says, these things God has revealed us to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So for, in order for us to understand what we possess in Christ, we must, must depend on the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, I could take the Bible and read it, and it'll just be words to me. But with the Holy Spirit, with the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, He gives me insight, He gives me knowledge, He gives me understanding, and He gives me power to live what I am understanding. <clears throat> So after Paul expounds these great spiritual realities that are all in Christ, he now prays that we would understand these truths. <clears throat> it would do no good to know these truths and not understand them. You have to understand. Knowledge is not enough. We need to understand. Because if we don't understand them, how on earth are we going to ever live them? So many Christians are frustrated trying to live the Christian life they don't understand. And sometimes that's partly... The fault of the church, not teaching and discipling. And I don't think Paul is talking about filling the Christian's mind with knowledge and understanding, but praying that the understanding of that knowledge will be empowered to live it. And before I get into the meat of this prayer, let's look at the first point of the text, which I will not spend much time on, so we can get into Paul's prayer. First thing is, Paul did not cease to thank God for the Ephesians. Verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. You should always thank God for your brothers and sisters in Christ, the church. Why did Paul give thanks to the Ephesians? 
Did he just randomly give thanks or was there a particular reason? And if you read verse 15, there was a particular reason. He says, the first reason Paul thanked God, because of their faith in Christ. He thanked God because of their faith in Christ. Their faith was genuine belief and the object of their faith was not faith in faith. The object of their faith was Jesus Christ. They did not only believe in Christ as Savior, but His Lordship as well. Their faith was grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Is your heart filled with gratitude towards God for another believer's faith in Christ? Paul not only thanked God for their faith, but also thanked Him on a regular basis for their faith. You know, it was customary back then to pray three times a day. And I can imagine Paul getting up in the morning, and I thank you God for the Ephesians. I thank you for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that they have love for one another. And I could see him right before lunchtime getting up again and praying. Thank you, Lord, for the Ephesians. Thank you for their faith in, this, in the, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for their love for the saints. And again, at dinner time, Paul was consistently praying for the Ephesians. The second reason why Paul thanked God for the Ephesians is because of their love towards all the saints. Genuine love does not discriminate, excuse me. He prayed for all the saints. Believers love what Christ loves. He loves all believers. In other words, we love the saints with the same love Christ has for them. It was genuine and it was sacrificial. That's the way Christ loved us and he's asking us to love the brothers and sisters the same way. Believers love what Christ loves. He loved all believers. We don't have the, same, the, the, the time to fully describe what genuine Christian love looks like. But we know this. It was genuine and sacrificial. 1 John 5.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. The Ephesians were very much alive. Why? Because they had love for all the saints. Do you love the saints tonight? Do you thank God when you see believers loving and caring for one another? Faith in Christ and love for the saints are the earmarks of genuine salvation of the believer. That's the two genuine earmarks of genuine salvation. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for one another. Harold Honer in his commentary on Ephesians said, A proper relationship with God should lead to a proper relationship with other Christians. And I could tell when people don't love one another, there's only one reason why they're not loving one another, is because their relationship with God is not right. Their faith was evident not only in their inward spiritual lives, but in their relationship with their fellow Christians, as well as Paul. As well, and Paul was thankful for this. Paul was very thankful for this. You know, up until the point of my conversion in September 1978, the only thing I was thankful for was if someone gave me something, shared something with me, and then I would thank them. I thanked my parents when they gave me something. I had and still have a good brother and a sister, but I assure you I didn't thank, I didn't say thank you, mother and father, for the love my sister and brother have for each other and for me. And the respect we have for you due to your upbringing. I didn't thank my mother or father for that. Maybe I should have. Maybe I should have thanked God for the love of my family. 
But I didn't know the Lord then. The only thing I thanked God for was the food I ate and, and the prayers I said during church service. And honestly, that was kind of mechanical. Now, redeemed by God, I have reason to thank my Lord and Savior for you. You need to unceasingly thank and praise God for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't just thank God for you and what he has done for you. But thank God what he has done for others in the church. When you do this, you will be more inclined to do as Philippians 2 verse 4 says. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you can genuinely thank God for the saints, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and their love for one another, you will have no problems putting their interests above your own. So Paul gives thanks to the Ephesians, faith and love, which prompted him to pray this marvelous prayer for them. Now even though Paul gave unceasing thanks to God for them, he is still not satisfied with them. And this is the second point we're going to talk about. Paul prayed for the Ephesians. So what was his prayer for them? Did they get a new car? (laughs) Did they get the job they deserve? Or did he pray that they're healed? Or did he pray that they get the second blessing? No. He prayed for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Pray to know God deeper and more intimately. That's basically what he prayed for them. Listen to verses 16 through 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him. It is tragic that many believers look for more than what they already have in the Christian life. They want more of Jesus, more of the Holy Spirit, more power, more blessing, deeper this, deeper that, implying that at salvation God withheld some of the blessings. Listen carefully. God through Christ gave you everything. Everything. He did not hold one thing. You will not receive more blessing or inheritances that you already have. Paul did not pray for more. Rather, he prayed that they understand and appropriate to the fullest what they already have. Verses 3 to 14 tells us what we have in Christ. And Paul, in essence, now prays that they understand what they have and they use it. In chapter 1, verse 3 of this of his first epistle, Peter says, and he understood this also, his divine power has granted to us, what? All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So Paul understood that too. And what is exactly does Paul pray for the Ephesians? The spirit of wisdom and revelation. First, Paul directs his prayers to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the God who deserves all the glory. And the Father of glory is an Old Testament, um, it's kind of influenced by the Old Testament. And also Paul calls him the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. This statement does not diminish Christ's divinity. When you hear uh, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, you would think, well, Jesus is not God because 
Paul just said he's the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't diminish his divinity at all. Jesus Christ, the Son, is always, is and always will be as much God as the Father. In essence, in nature, in being, he is equal in power and sovereignty and authority and so on and so forth. However, in this statement, the God of our Lord Jesus is referring to his humanity as the Son who voluntarily submits to the Father. And Paul specifically prays that God may give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now the spirit, or the phrase, the spirit of wisdom is debated. Is Paul speaking of the human spirit? Is he speaking of the Holy Spirit? Or spirit in the sense of an attitude? Well, believers already have a human spirit, 1 Corinthians 2.11. And they possess the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians uh, 6.19. Or could he be speaking of a, this, an attitude? The Greek word for spirit is pneuma. And like our English word spirit, like our English word spirit, pneuma is sometimes used as a disposition, influence, or an attitude. For example, we might say, he confessed in a spirit of self-respect, not defiance. Jesus also used the word in that sense in Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So it could possibly mean that Paul prayed that the Lord would give them give the Ephesians a disposition of wisdom. In any case, wisdom is given through the Holy Spirit that touches the human spirit, creates the right spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. What does it mean to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation? Let's define wisdom. Wisdom comes from a Greek word, Sophia, and carries the idea of prudence, discretion, that is, the capacity to understand and therefore act. Revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. Sometimes it's pronounced apocalypse. Um, and it means what is revealed, the disclosure. In other words, revelation deals with God imparting knowledge. And wisdom is the use of that knowledge. You act upon that knowledge. Wisdom gives you the understanding of how to use that revelation knowledge. In essence, Paul was asking God that the Ephesians would grasp who they are and what they possess in Christ and use it. When I was 14 years old, I started playing the drums. My parents gave me my first drum set. However, I had limited knowledge in how to play. Approximately five years later, I began drum lessons. Now, it did me no good if the instructor took the drum chart and put it in front of me and said, now play I didn't know what I was looking at, right? If you put something in front of you that you're first learning, you're not going to know what it is. He had to explain to me. He said, John, these are quarter notes, and this is what it looks like. These are eight notes, and these are 16 notes. All it looked like to me were black dots. Then my instructor started to explain what they were, and what they are, and how to play them. He said, John, quarter notes, one. Two, three, four. He said, John, eight notes. One and two and three and four. John, 16 notes. One and a two and a three and a four. and You see, first I had the knowledge. I saw the quarter notes and the eight notes and the 16 notes. Then he explained to me what they are and how to use them. Then I understood. And then I played. So you might be thinking, but where do I get this revelation knowledge? Where do I get this? Does it just pop into my head by osmosis? No. We get our revelation from the pages of Scripture. 
Wisdom then becomes the practical ability to understand Scripture and apply its truths to our daily lives. Simple. Revelation comes first, and then wisdom. It has to be in your mind and heart before you can live it. Why? For what purpose should we have a spirit of wisdom and revelation? Well, uh, let's look at verse 17 again. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. What's the purpose? That they will know God better. Paul wants his readers to have a full, deep, intimate knowledge of God, more than intellectual knowledge, but much richer and deeper. Paul wants his readers to have a full grasp of what the scriptures are saying. He doesn't want them to understand it in a shallow sense. He wants, to, he wants them to understand it with deep conviction and that they can live it out, not just know it, not just even understand it, but to live it out. You can be a Christian and have a shallow knowledge of God, but, you, but do you desire to know Him more? Do you desire to know Him more? In Philippians 3, 10, Paul makes this astounding statement. He says, That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Paul already knew Christ. What are you talking about, Paul? You already know Christ. He knew him deeply and he knew him intimately. Just read his epistles. But his greatest desire was to know him even more. Never be satisfied where you are with Christ. Always want to move on, grow in the knowledge and the understanding of Christ. I know and love my wife. However, I want my knowledge and love for her to grow deeper and more intimate. I have all of her as my wife already. She's not going to become more of my wife. However, my knowledge of her and love for her, I want to go deeper and deeper. You already have all of Jesus and all of the spiritual blessings that come with salvation. You have it all already. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Past tense. Past tense. You already have it. Pray for yourselves and the saints that you will know him in a deeper and more intimate way. God does desire that for his church. Paul continues his prayer for his readers' spiritual understanding in verses 18 and 19. He says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards Toward us who believe. And this is the third point. The reason why Paul prayed for the Ephesians to come into a deeper and more intimate knowledge of God was he wanted them to know three things. He wanted them to know the hope to which he has called them. He wanted them to know what are the riches of his glorious, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. The deeper And more intimate knowledge you have of God, the more you will know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power. Paul prays to God that the eyes of his reader's heart would be enlightened. Paul is using an Old Testament expression. Psalm 19.8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
Paul's praying that they have spiritual insight. And that they can take hold of the truth of God's purposes. The hope to which he has called them. The riches of his glorious inheritance. And the immeasurable greatness of his power. He wanted them to be renewed in the, spirits of their, in the spirit of their minds. Where once they were darkened. And I think we could all relate to that. So the reason why he prays for this spiritual insight. Is that they know three things. And the first one is the hope to which he has called them. Because God chose you. In Christ, before the foundations of the world, you have this blessed hope. Not just for now, but for all eternity. And this call is not dependent on your goodness. It's dependent on God's divine grace. And here's the hope, and here's the hope to which he has called them. If you read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, if you read it, You'll see all the hope that you have in Christ. And Paul in essence says, I pray that they understand what you have planned for them. You elected them. You redeemed them. And promised them an inheritance. You called them before the foundations of the world. This is not an afterthought. Christ had this planned for your life today. Sitting in Sunship Ministries in Bay Ridge. Eons and eons ago. He had it planned that you would be here today and listening to this message. That you would be redeemed. That you would be elected. That you would have an inheritance in the saints. I mean, God, this was not an afterthought. This was planned in God's mind and hearts from all eternity. Try to wrap your mind around that one. The Christian who does not know his calling will never be able to walk worthy of that calling. Please meditate on chapter 1 this week, if you can, especially on verses 3 through 14. Get to know what you have been called to and what you possess in Christ. And you'll say what what I said when I read it and meditated upon it. Wow. Wow. So Paul wanted the Ephesians to know the hope to to which God has called. And secondly, he wanted them to know what the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And this is debated whether it means... The saint's inheritance or God's inheritance? Based on verse 14, which says, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? And Colossians 1.14, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Based on those two verses, scholars say that this is speaking of an inheritance that God will give us. However, the text, the way I see it in verse 18 His glorious inheritance, not the inheritance he bestows on the saints. And therefore, it's probably better to understand this as the saints, that we are God's inheritance. Now, the saints do have an inheritance. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17. Christians inherit everything Christ has. Everything Christ has by divine right, we receive by divine grace. I can't even begin to comprehend that. However, in this context, as the saints of God, you are his inheritance, his possession. And I like what Warren Wiersbe says. We not only have an inheritance in Christ, but we are an inheritance to Christ. Just as a man's wealth brings glory to his name, so God will get glory from the church because of what he has invested in us. When Jesus Christ returns, we shall be to the praise of the glory of His grace. You belong to Christ forever. 
You are His chosen people and have been claimed by Him as His inheritance. You treasured, you're treasured by Christ and you will be redeemed by Him completely when that final day comes. You are an inheritance to Christ. Thirdly, Paul wanted to know what the immeasurable greatness of his power. He wanted the Ephesians to know that. Let's read verses 19 through 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and dominion and power, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. First, Paul wanted them to know all they possess in Christ so they could appropriate this vast wealth. In order to do this, they needed God's power. We are too weak to use what we have. Second, they needed God's power to defeat the enemy of their souls. The devil would like nothing more than to rob us of our wealth. You know that, right? We need not to be unaware of the devil's schemes and rely on God's divine power to overcome him. Paul uses four different words for power, emphasizing God's activity in people's lives. And I'm not going to go into all the Greek words and their meanings. However, I'll tell you this. The power that we have is a supernatural, energizing, mighty, and strong power. In other words, God's Holy Spirit empowers all believers to lift Him, to overcome the devil, the world, and the flesh, and assures us of the realization of our eternal hope. This is the power that's available to you. This is the same power that you have that raised Christ from the dead. In the Old Testament, the saints measured God's power by His creation, or when God delivered Israel out of Egypt. But today we measure His power by the resurrection. Also, it was more than raising Him from the dead. The Spirit's power also ascended Christ to God the Father's right hand, where He is seated in sovereign power now. This is the same power that put all things under Christ's feet. Christ is exalted far above all authority, all power, whether human or in, spirit, or in the spirit world, and no one will ever overcome him. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed, him on, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And this is the same power that appointed Christ over the church. The church is so identified with Christ that she is called his body, just as Adam um, described Eve as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and a man and wife are one flesh. Christ is not only the head of the church, which is his body, but he is head over all things to and for the church's benefit. Francis Falcus said the church has authority and power to overcome all opposition because a leader and head is Lord of all. And you have the same power living within you, if you're a Christian, that raised Christ from the dead, that put all things under Christ's feet, and that appointed Christ over the head of the church. If you belong to Christ, guess what? You have that same power. This doesn't mean you're going to be physically raised from the dead. Or you're going to be head over the church. 
Or God is going to put all things under your feet? No, it means the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available for you to live your daily lives for Christ. Lastly, verse 22 says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And this is two basic views on this. Some say Christ is incomplete until his church is complete. Christ fills the church. He gives fullness to the believers. But the church is the fullness of him. John Calvin says this. This is the highest honor of the church. That until he is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What consolation it is if it is for us to learn that not until we are in his presence does he possess all his parts or does he wish to be regarded as complete. In a marriage, a wife completes her husband. Adam needed a suitable helper, so the Lord created Eve from his rib. Thus, Adam was complete. That's one view. The second view basically is that Christ fills his church. Christ is the fullness of God who fills all things and the church draws from his fullness. I think this view is probably the better way to understand verses 22 and 23 because my understanding at this point, uh, there is nowhere in the New Testament that Christ finds his fullness from the church. Listen, because Christ fills us with himself, we are representatives of him. Christ is the head of all things for the church. The church is his body, and we are to express him in the world. The reason we can be the full expression of him is because he fills us. Right now we are scattered, but one day we will be united with him. And I guess in that sense, and I say this lightly, I'm not dogmatic about this, that one day Christ and his church will be complete, because we will be united with him forever. The head will be joined to the body, the groom will be joined to his bride. Let me conclude. Paul thanked and prayed for God's flock. He was deeply concerned that they knew what they possessed in Christ. He was deeply concerned that they understood what they possessed in Christ. He was deeply concerned that they understood that they had Christ's resurrection power to live for Christ. And his deep concern resulted in consistent prayer for the flock of God. Let me ask you this. Our sonship family. Do you know and understand what you possess in Christ? The abundant blessings, the unlimited resource, do you understand that? Do you know that you have all you need and there's really nothing more that you need? There's really one thing you need to know and understand what you possess, which are spiritual resources and resurrection power to use those resources. That's what you need to understand that you have this already. This will lead you into a deeper and more intimate experiential knowledge and understanding of God. So what do you do? What do you do? You pray. And you ask our gracious Lord for a greater understanding of Him. A greater understanding of what you have in Christ. A greater understanding of the power you possess to live for Him. And pray this not only for yourselves, but also for your brothers and sisters in Christ, the church. Warren Wisby tells a story. On January 6, 1822, the wife of a poor German pastor had a son 
never dreaming that he would one day achieve world renown and great wealth. When Hendrik Schleiman was seven years old, a picture of an ancient Troy in flames captured his imagination. Contrary to what many people believed, Henrich argued that Homer's great poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, were based on historic facts. And he set out to prove it. In 1873, he uncovered the ancient site of Troy, along with some fabulous treasure, which he smuggled out of the country, much to the anger of the Turkish government. Schleiman became a famous wealthy man because he dared to believe an ancient record and act on his faith. We discovered that we were born rich when we trusted Christ, but this is not enough, for we must grow in our understanding of our riches. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you that we have everything that we need in Christ. Everything. Every spiritual blessing that we have, that we need, is found in Christ. And God, my prayer for all of us tonight is that you enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Open our minds and hearts to the truth of your word. Help us not only to know it, God, what we possess in Christ, but to understand it, Lord. For who can live out a truth unless they understand it? And then, God, who can live out a truth unless you empower us by by your Holy Spirit? Help us, God, to know your truth, to understand it, and to apply it to our lives. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.